The Sunday Grill on Beat 102-103. The Wexford-based Michelle O'Gorman is a specialist in eating disorders and body image. She says she's seen a rise in cases of eating disorders among young women and women in particular throughout this pandemic. To discuss more, Michelle joins me this morning. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me, Orla. I don't I don't know why I say this pandemic. We've never experienced anything like this before, have we? Oh, it's absolutely crazy. I, I, yeah. I, there's no words. <laughs> and I'm sure in your line of work, because I know personally from my own relationship with food, I did the thing that I think an awful lot of people did back in March that I decided that I was going to take this as a, a way to get fit and lose weight. And I therefore put myself in, under so much pressure that I did the exact opposite. Yeah, um, a lot. Of, I think with social media, a lot of people were looking at like, like, I'm not going to, you know, gain weight, I'm going to get fit. But unfortunately, you know, with COVID-19, there's a lot of stress. And, you know, a lot of people will either, well, people that I worked with will either restrict when stress comes on or will either binge eat. So what's happened for myself is a lot of mothers contacted me during COVID-19 where their young teenagers were starting to restrict their feelings and over-exercise and lost a lot of weight. And then, of course, there was a good few people who binge eat. And even when uh, the restrictions came down, a lot of people came back to me with other with their daughters as well. And um, I got very, very busy due to people just constantly restricting. So literally on the verge of anorexia nervosa. Wow. And is that a case of um, current problems being completely exasperated because of lockdown and the pandemic and the stress that that all brings with it? Or new problems that mothers were experiencing with their young girls or were experiencing themselves? Um, I think it's actually, two, the two can play out there. A lot of people that came to me was the fact that, I suppose, you know, with an eating disorder anyway, a person can be genetically predisposed to have one. And the reason mm. being that is uh, they're very sensitive and they're vulnerable. And it's a, an eating disorder in itself is a coping mechanism. So it helps to deal with uncomfortable feelings. It helps to deal with stress. So a lot of people are always focusing on the food, but it's actually the behaviors and it's asking them, like, what, what are you feeling? Again, sometimes with eating distress, it can be a learned behavior from mothers, from our culture that we live in. So but for the young people that I'm working with right now, it was that um, the fact that they were in isolation. They had no friends. And since a lot of them have gone back to school, a few uh, clients that I've worked with, actually, a lot of the behaviors have subsided. They have decreased. Um, which is really, okay. really good um, because, again, if you have an eating disorder for like uh, a long time, it's going to take the sooner you get an eating, uh, sooner you catch an eating disorder, the better for the person. If they have an eating disorder for a good few years, they're they're so ingrained in the habit, it takes a lot a longer time for them to recover. So a good few, I fair play to a few mothers that I was working with. They caught it really early and they contacted me. And they were able to get on the other side of it very quickly. Unfortunately for a few others, they did not have the opportunity and they became obsessed with exercise. Okay. Yeah. I, I'd say you have a hard job in one way because the diet culture mentality, it's everywhere. Like people talk about weight constantly. Am I right in saying that? Yes, all the time. And that can be a major trigger for young people I'm working with, especially for some who went back to school or went back, you know, back, back to work. It's like everyone's talking about their diet or, you know, or, you know, um, and it literally is a trigger for them. Well, I, I should restrict the cheese on the diet. I'm like, you you can't restrict. You're not that at that level. So if you can think mm. about it, there's four aspects of someone who have an eating disorder. So there's their behavior. There's the cognitive thinking, there's the physical and the emotional. So we have to look on and all those aspects can, you know, get overlapped all the time. So you're constantly working on. So behavior is whether they're purging or they're restricting and you're dealing with that. Then the cognitive function. So if someone's been is underweight and under eating, their thinking styles, they just they can't think properly for themselves. Their physical body is weak. And obviously then they're very emotional because food is medicine. We need food to create serotonin in our brain. We need it to mm. keep us calm. So you're obviously you're always working on those aspects. So it, it becomes a function for them. So when someone's coming to me and um, like the treatment, it's about helping them to educate themselves why they create in the first place, which is usually sometimes to deal with trauma, which COVID-19 in itself was traumatic for, for mm -hmm. people and learn teaching them new coping skills to deal with stress and also to 
talk about their feelings because anyone who's either purging or anorexia nervosa or binge eating, if they are not able to speak their truth or say what's going on in their mind, so they'll they'll either restrict that feelings or they'll they'll binge. So it's again new coping skills, emotional resilience, um, and you're working like that with them constantly. Wow. Um, you're both a specialist in eating disorders and body image. I'm sure those two things go hand in hand. Oh, yeah, 100%. So it's again, it's like a vicious circle. So mm. um, if you can imagine a pie, a pie chart, and it's broken down into slices, like a slices of cake, and you have nutrition or intervention is one slice, you've got body images, another slice, you've got cognitive thinking styles is another slice, um, you've got um, uh, self-esteem, you've got stress management. So there's slices in the pie all the time, and you're constantly working around that pie with the client and trying to educate them and also working with their distorted thinking styles. So when someone comes to me, I will say to them, I'll break it down to them that you have a healthy self and you have an eating distressed self. There's two selves okay. playing out. And it's every day when you're waking up, which one are you watering? Are you watering, like a plant, are you watering your healthy self or your eating distressed self? And obviously when they come to me, they're watering very much their eating distressed self. And it's again, okay, well, how can we put in small little goals so every day that you're watering your uh, healthy self, which is maybe... It'll always go down to any way with any eating disorder specialist is where you're trying your very best to support them to eat three meals, which includes three snacks. So and they're eating every three to four hours and get them onto that kind of structure to help them. So if they have that structure down, then they can deal with the stress management and the body image. But the body image is probably the last thing to, I suppose, that really sorts itself out in the end. It's kind of like that and the inner critic. Okay, so they're the last things that change. Yeah, like you, you work with them as you go, but usually it's really, obviously it's nutritional intervention that needs to happen because if a person's not being fed properly, they're not going to think straight. So that's mm. the main part. And then it's rewiring the brain because if you break it down to you, it's become a habit. So it's like teaching them to rewire the brain and then recover. And then um, you're working as body images at body image as you go, but a major of that heals at the very, very end. So it can be the very the last thing. Yeah. Um, what would you say? Like, I, I, I know there's so much out there and there's so much to kind of debunk about eating and um, diet culture and, you know, body image. But what if, like myself, if you have a small child, like my little girl is four, and, you know, already we're talking about healthy eating from her school and stuff like that. And in a way, it scares me because I, I think... I don't want you to think foods are good or bad. What advice would you give people with small children about stuff like that? Uh, first of all, I would always say to parents, like, look at your own body image. Um, mm. How are you talking about yourself, about your body image in front of your kids? I wouldn't make it so much about the food. I would make it more about their hunger levels, their hunger okay. cues. Like, are they hungry? Um, are they eating to like sustain themselves or are they eating to uh is it self-sabotage or are they eating uh to love themselves like what is their feeling so i'd always say it's really about their hunger signals more so than pointing out you shouldn't be eating this now my is child is always hungry she says she's four yeah. Yeah, <laughs> i she's don't think probably, she knows what know, hunger is yeah and it's let them like actually let them be a child but what happens mm. is sometimes with parents we may project our own fears um, and that's with some clients I've worked with, you know, like their parents projected their own fears or their mm. own body images onto their children and actually created an eating disorder that was never there. Okay. So it's always, yeah, so it, that's a big, big, big factor. So it's all, I always say to parents, you know, have self, self-compassion for yourself and look at your own body image. And then, because kids, they're a sponge, they'll take up everything. They'll pick up on everything. So it's mm. really important is how you see yourself in the world and your own body. and then your child will pick up that, whether it's positive or negative. Okay, that's interesting. That's the one thing that I haven't done, you know? So you do have to think <laughs> about your own self-esteem when you're thinking of your children. I listened to an interesting podcast last week with a nutritionist and she had a system, you probably use it yourself, called the HALT system. That when oh, you're... Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. Hungry, yeah, angry, lonely, stressed or tired. And, and I, actually, I, I, yeah, I have sorry, another one on that though, for myself. It's bored. Are you bored? Well, actually, I use the BLAST so B L A S T. Are you bored, lonely, angry, stressed, or tired? So this is for people who like are binge eater, or obviously are mm. bored, or lonely, stressed, or tired. And um, for anyone that works with me, they're giving them a, a food diary. So it just you know, and in the food diary, it's broken down to the time to eat, 
what to eat, who, uh, where they're eating with, uh, their hunger levels on a scale of one to 10, any mm-hmm. triggers or any comments. And then on the top of it, I always have blast or, and food is medicine. So, so they can break it down for themselves. Like what are they, what kind of emotion are they trying to fill? Mm. Mm. And for me, it's boredom. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least you have the awareness. One of the, yes. the main things is having the awareness of it. Awareness, acceptance and taking action. And that's a big thing with eating distress and eating disorders because a lot of young girls sometimes don't have the awareness of why they're doing what they're doing and young men as well. So you have to bring in the awareness, get them curious about, okay, why did you create this eating disorder or eating distress in the first place? Then bring in a self-acceptance. So for the body image, I'd always say, okay, it's really hard to tell, you know, or even suggest to someone when they come in at the very start, love your body, accept your body. So we start with body neutrality. Can you, so if you can just start and say, okay, my body is okay. I'm happy. Mm. It does, it functions well. And then we work from there. Um, and that actually brings in self-acceptance and then taking action. So the taking action may be very different from for different clients. It may be like um, a lot of people, um, emotional eaters, eat late at night, you know, mm-hmm. again, because they're bored, lonely, you know, mm-hmm. stressed or they're tired. Okay, so what do we need? Like when you're bored, what can you do? Given coping skills when you're bored ring a friend, read a good book, maybe do some stress management. Mm-hmm. Um, a bit of knitting, look, maybe. I always find yeah. if I could do something with my hands, I'd be fine. Knitting is fabulous. I've yeah. always, always suggest that that my clients, because it really shuts, you know, the mind off. Or mm. puzzles, look, mm-hmm. uh, young people, that I, uh, girls I work with, oh, like maybe puzzles, meditation, some sort of mindfulness, something where it's uh, relaxation. Because mm. an eating distress is all mind, it's all thinking styles, and you just want to, shut that mind down for a bit okay yeah some really interesting points there um if you want to chat to michelle her website has all the info on it it's michelleorgorman.com and you're based in county wexford is that right michelle i'm based in wexford and i'm also doing online zoom uh due okay. to covid so a bit of both <laughs> Okay, good stuff. Um, I learned loads there. Thank you so much for talking to us this morning. That is Michelle O'Gorman again. Her website is michelleogorman.com. The Sunday Grill on Beat 102-103. Well, author Shane Dunphy has many hats. He's written non-fiction, thrillers. He writes for newspapers. And now he has made a series of audiobooks for Audible. Shane is here to tell us more about what I, I suppose is a very different genre even if you're someone like yourself who has written for years? It is totally different. And it's been a really fascinating experience, to be honest with you. I'm actually, uh, just before I I sat down to chat to you, Orla, I was um, editing the third in the series, which the book is already finished and will be going in to record it shortly. And what's wonderful is that this is written to be read aloud. And the whole idea is that I'm sitting down with you, the listener, and I'm telling you the story about this particular experience that I had. So we need to write it in such a way that there's a rhythm and it flows. And so it's much shorter sentences. It's very short, punchy chapters. And we're kind of writing it in such a way that we know that you're going to get a nice chunk out of it on your commute to work or when you're walking your dog or whatever. And that then the story will be there. and will be easy for you to pick up on uh, the next time you, okay. you decide to dip into that world. So, yeah, it's a very different way of writing, but it's been a really interesting and exciting one for me. This is a series called Stories from the Margins. Tell us about some of the stories within it. Okay, well, the first one, this is the second one, the one that's coming out um, in October the 15th or the 16th, I think, depending on what part of the world you're in. Um, So the, the first one is called Bleak Alley. So it's Stories from the Margins, Bleak Alley. And that's about a group of kids who are in a youth gang that I got involved in through my work as a journalist. One okay. of them approached me and asked me to write the story of how he believed the gang had saved his life and had made his life so much better. This second one, which is called The Bad Place, actually picks up very, very early in my career doing social care, where I'm working with a young girl um, in her early teens who's in residential care. And she starts talking about the fact that her last foster placement, which was with an uncle who was very well off, and she, this placement had broken down. And when she starts talking to a therapist about why it broke down, she's recounting these awful parties that her uncle used to bring her along to, in which, uh, you know, very, very wealthy people were attending. But bad things happened at these parties. 
The hair has stood up on the back of my neck already. With exactly, that yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's a horrible thought, isn't it? But she mm-hmm. also starts talking about the fact that at these parties, she starts naming some of the other young people who were at it. And the therapist realizes that some of these names are matching up with um, stories she's read in the papers of missing persons. Okay. And so I go along to confront this uncle. And when I go along, I encounter his head of security, who, shall we say, sends me packing in no uncertain terms and scares the living daylights out of me. And this girl is referring to this head of security as the dark man. Okay. Now, the police have already in, in interviewed the uncle. They believe that there's nothing to see here. I persuade myself that I'm sent packing simply because, you know, people who are well off don't like to have you know, child mm. protection workers interfering with them. And being a bit of a, a macho Egypt at this stage in my career, the fact that he kind of, you know, gives me a bit of a thump, you know, on the way, I don't want to talk about that. But 20 years later, a colleague of mine who's a journalist asks me to help him research a book about missing persons. And in his research, he has interviewed families of some of these people that have disappeared. And they have spoken about the fact that their missing loved ones reported having seen an individual in the days before they disappeared, whom they refer to as the dark man. Okay. And that sends me back down the rabbit hole. Now, of course, initially, I, I'm terrified and don't want to help. But, uh, and I tell my friend, look, there's nothing I can do here. I'd advise you to walk away. But about three months later, a parent approaches me to help her track down her son, who disappeared while in care um, in the late 1990s. And she was told he was illegally adopted in the United States. Mm -hmm. When I start digging into this, I interview some people from the care home he was in. And they refer to the fact that um, the the, the people who took him, who were in a car, there was a man and a woman. And the young person who observed him being abducted refers to this person as the dark man. man. And the physical description matches this guy that I encountered earlier on. And now I have no choice but to face my fears and my demons and uh, see if I can find out what happened to these kids. So that's episode and two. And that's the story of, of the bad place. And that's episode two of Stories from the Margins. It is indeed. And that's out this coming Thursday, October the 15th. Is that right? October October the 15th, October the 16th. It okay. depends on, I've seen both dates listed in different pages on Amazon and Audible. But yeah, October the 15th, I think, is the, uh, is the date. It's available for free order now. Now, tell me this. How long is that piece of audio then? Um, I'm, I think we're, it's coming in somewhere around eight or nine hours okay, altogether. Okay, so I'll get a good to, nine yeah. hours of exercise out you'll, of you'll get a, you'll, you'll get a good, a good listen if you download it, exactly. And I've also recorded original um, music and songs and things like that as part of the package because I wanted to be an immersive read. And Orla, the, the, the whole message behind the Stories from the Margin series is that we all live in worlds which are very familiar to us, towns and villages and housing estates and shopping centers. And, you know, we we feel quite safe in these places. But I also want to kind of put out there the idea that on the margins, on the peripheries, on the outskirts of these locations, often not very far away from where we all live our lives, there are stuff that we don't even know about happening, Mm -hmm. that the world is is much more layered and... um, you know, sometimes much a much darker place than we might realize. But often we, we don't see these things. You walk down the street and you see a, a homeless person who has a whole backstory. And sometimes we prefer not to see those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's really what Stories from the Margins is about. What I'm doing here is I'm taking you by the hand and I'm leading you to some of these locations and showing you this is the truth of what's going on. And as I said, sometimes it might not be very far away from you at all. Okay. Um, you, as you said, you have recorded the narration yourself and composed and performed the original music that I'm sure pre-COVID would have been about travelling to various studios and things like this. <laughs> Not so much now, For eh? sure. For <laughs> sure. Yeah, the, fir- the first audio book, Bleak Alley, was recorded in Audible Studios in London. Oh, how lovely. And, uh, in London, yeah. So I got a bit of a, a trip over there and was, uh, you know, put up in a hotel quite near the uh, studio. And the first day that I went over, actually, to just see the studio and kind of meet people, I was informed that the studio that I was recording in, um, Stephen Fry had recorded in there relatively recently. Oh, nice. And the day that I went in, I had lunch there and sitting at a table adjacent to where I was sitting with a couple of members of the cast of The Crown. Wow. You know, the series on Netflix. 
So, yeah, you're, you're rubbing shoulders with the, the great and the good. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> well, not unfortunately, because I still had a very nice time. But um, The Bad Place was recorded in a studio in Dublin with, uh, with just me. At least <laughs> and, you got to go to and Dublin. A, and an engineer, and it was all done socially distant. Now, I will say I did have a wonderful time, and we linked in with the, the guys in, in London uh, via Zoom or something. I, I didn't have to worry about that. It was all done by, by Alex, my brilliant engineer. And I will say it was also a really, really relaxed and very, very cool experience. So, yeah, I didn't get the trip to London and I didn't get to, to rub shoulders with celebrities, but I still had a pretty good time. Good stuff. Um, every time I talk to you, you seem to have a different project, which makes me think you must never watch television or look at social media. How do you fit it all in? Because you have what we could call a real job as well. Yeah, I do. I'm, I'm head of the social care department in Waterford College of Further Education, which is a job I absolutely love. Right now, I divide my time between writing and teaching. Um, I also still am involved in, in, in consultancy in the child protection area. I've kind of always got something going on there. Mm. Um, I do. I have a very loyal following on social media. I have to say I'm very, very lucky that a lot of my readers and, and listeners um, regularly reach out to tell me how much the work means to them, which is wonderful. Um, I also have a very patient family who are incredibly supportive. Um, you know, I've got a, a son and a daughter um, who are always, um, you know, brilliant and let me know how proud they are of what I do. I have mm-hmm. a, a grandson now as well, mm-hmm. um, uh, Reese, who is, is fantastic, and my wife Deirdre is brilliant. And, um, yeah, look, do you know what? I mean, you're a busy person as well, Orla. You, you've always got something on the go. And we just find the time at the end of the day. Um, I have to say, lockdown actually was a really interesting period for me because it made me sit down and stay in one place and actually breathe. And I actually found it, uh, despite the fact that certainly just the same as everybody else, the first few weeks were terrifying. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I've got, I've got, you know, parents and parents in law, um, you know, who needed to be looked after. uh, And, and, you know, that that was, was something that was scary. But once we all got used to that, actually, you know, it, it, it actually wasn't so bad. And I got a lot of writing done and got to spend some time with the people that I love and got out and, and, and did some, some walking in, in some nice locations close by. And it just, sometimes we need that. Sometimes we need to just stand still and enjoy where we are and enjoy what we've got. And it, it wasn't such a bad thing from that point of view. True. And you got productive, it sounds, as well, uh, especially with this Audible series. If people want to search for it, um, it's Stories from the Margins and it's by the Southeast own Shane Dumphy. Shane, I'm sure we'll talk to you again about some other project soon. Look after yourself. It was lovely to talk to you this morning. You too, Orla. Take it easy. Bye-bye. The Solace Cancer Support Centre Run and Walk for Life 2020. Well, it's here. You may have done it by now because the Solace Cancer Support Centre's annual Run and Walk for Life is officially underway this weekend. This year, of course, it's virtual, so you can do whatever distance you want in your own county. And people are wearing orange today, too, to show their support. We did it here in Beat and sharing pics online with the hashtag GoOrange. If you're involved, We'd love to see some of your picks, so send them our way as well. And don't forget, you can pledge your support by texting Solace to 51500 and you'll receive a link to donate. Standard tech rates apply. Um, over 2,300 people have signed up already and one of those is our Debbie. She has done her run. Did you do the 10K? I did 11K, what? yes, on Friday. So um, I did an 11K run. Basically, I added the extra kilometre because it was either I end up in Tremor or okay. I end up in my garden and head to bed. Oh, <laughs> I like your style. And so that extra kilometre just did wonders okay. for it. So but, Friday um, morning, it's all done and dusted and it was your way, so 11k. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it was very good, I have to say. Um, I found it a little bit tough at times. Obviously, I am not a runner. Mm-hmm. I don't plan on being a runner mm-hmm. in any time. But for the Solace Cancer Support Centre, you're going to do it, no problem, because it's such an amazing thing to have in the southeast. But... I did the uh, 11K and what's so great about the actual run for life is anytime you're wearing the orange t-shirt, it's, you just get so much love oh, given to you for no reason. And you're like, ah! Yeah. And like I was struggling, say, on kilometer eight and I was just about to stop running. And as I did, 
uh, five cars passed and started beeping at me and I was like oh I've got to keep running now <laughs> it's all good uh, so uh, I love it it, it was it's just fab. it's such a great feeling and what's particularly lovely about this weekend is if you're in you, any county you're in in the southeast. I've seen some mm-hmm. in Wexford. You'll see the orange t-shirt and you'll know exactly what it's for. It's such a great, great feeling. So you've done the run. You've done the hashtag Go Orange on your social media and you have donated. And that's what you can do as well today. You can pledge your support, as I said, by texting Solace to 51500. You'll receive that link to donate. And then those standard text rates apply, of course, and just thank you for taking part in this year's annual Run and Walk for Life for the Solace Cancer Support Centre. As we said, this is their biggest fundraiser every year. So the fact that it's gone virtual is a big one, but it's so lovely to see the orange T-shirts out there. Thank you to over 2,300 of you who have signed up already and the very best of luck if you are taking part today in the Solace Cancer Support Centre Run and Walk for Life. It really is worth it. Thank you, Debbie. Well done. Bye. I expect to see you on the roads from now on now that you are just a professional runner. If I'm wearing the orange T-shirt, maybe. You must run. <laughs> you have to run if you wear orange. The Solace Cancer Support Centre Run and Walk for Life 2020. Your way. Supported by UPMC Whitfield Hospital and Beat 102-103. Well, this one could be an experience for post-COVID or post-whatever level we are on. But have you heard of WUF. That stands for Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. It's been growing in popularity across Europe. As pre-pandemic, it gave people the chance to live alongside a host, helping with daily tasks and experiencing life as a farmer. One such host is Carmel O'Dwyer from Celtic Soul Yoga in County Wicklow, and she's on the phone to tell us more. You're very welcome, Carmel. Thanks, Aura. Um, it's lovely to talk to you. I, I, I love the idea of this, and I suppose it's been scuppered in a way for you over the past couple of weeks, but you did recently host an Irish family as part of the Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. I did. I did, actually, yeah. I had a lovely family who are from the local area, um, which is quite unusual, but I think that this is something that might happen more of going forward uh, it's something that I hadn't even considered, to be honest with you, that a local family might contact me. Um, and actually, when I signed up for taking families with Wolf, uh, I was kind of more thinking like, you know, maybe there might be like a single parent or something who might mm. want to come or, a, you know, with a couple of kids. I didn't want to exclude anybody. And, um, you know, having been a single parent during a part of my life myself, I kind of, you know, understood what that's like. And um, so that was when I when I signed up for that, but I did not expect to get a family with two teenage boys, uh, a husband and wife and two teenage boys. So actually, I tried to put them off (laughs) when they contacted me. And they were from County Wicklow as well, you say? Yeah, they were. Okay. And uh, so I just couldn't figure out why they would want to come, uh, you know, in their local area. So then with a bit of back and forth communication, they told me that they um, were, they had moved from South Africa a couple of years previously and they were stuck in an apartment with a balcony, having come from a beautiful okay. garden that they loved and looked after in South Africa. And so they were felt that their kids were really suffering and needing some nature time. And um, they wanted to give them some kind of experience here in Ireland of, you know, um, what, you know, mm. sustainable living and organic uh, practices here and that. So anyway, so they we agreed to, uh, after a bit of back and forth, I agreed to... Um, to take them on. So they came as kind of day woofers. You know, they came for just during the daytime and I would, you know, we just like give, give them a meal in exchange. Normally you would give food and accommodation um, for a certain number of hours of work during mm-hmm. the week. And, you know, there's an exchange. It's, it's really about an exchange of knowledge as well. That's and what more do you the have in County Wicklow? Obviously you run Celtic Soul Yoga, which is self-explanatory in itself. But what sort of land do you have along with that? Now, this is what's interesting, Orla, is because um, I noticed that you said there when at the intro that it's been kind of, you know, uh, really everything's been stalled, you know, since the pandemic. But mm. actually, I've had quite a lot of applications for my, to come to my place. Yeah. And I think it's because I'm, I'm, I'm not a farm. You know, I'm just a domestic householder, but I, I run a yoga studio and I keep organic, strict organic practices in my domestic garden and I have an allotment as well close to my house which is an organic allotment I haven't used any chemicals uh, in you know in my garden for since I moved here 25 years ago um, so when you're not using chemicals 
it just makes everything a little bit more labor intensive in the garden and you have to do specific practices to um, stay on top of things. So that's my situation. I'm, I'm, I'm just a domestic, uh, you know, suburban. Mm. Well, I mean, in Greystones, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know if you know Greystones, but mm-hmm. it's um, become a bit of a satellite town for Dublin, but it's still the country, you know. Um, yeah, so that's, that's my situation. I'm not actually a farm. So okay. years ago, wolves have actually changed um, in recent years. It used to be just for farms, but it's kind of grown over the years and modified uh, as needs you know, as we changed and sustainability became uh, more popular, you know, in every sense of our lives. Um, so then uh, the Wolf organization, you know, started to see people like who are running practices that have an ethos of sustainability. They might not necessarily be an organic a farm, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So then uh, like you might have like a cheese factory or, you know, that's producing organic cheeses like farmhouse cheeses, that kind of thing. And these kind of businesses could then um, qualify as long as they had a, a, an ethos of organic practices okay. could qualify for the wolf. And these people are obviously helping you with your allotment and um, with the stuff that you are doing as a sustainable and organic grower. But have you ever done it vice versa and gone onto a wolf farm anywhere else and been a volunteer? No, I haven't, but it's actually something that I may at some point do. Mm. And I've had some woofers over the years um, come to me and invite me to come to their places. Actually, I had a lovely guy from New Zealand back about 10 years ago, and he um, invited me to go and, and, you know, woof on his farm, which I was really planning to do and may still do someday. Um, I've had invites from France and uh, Spain and, you know, different uh, places around the world. Of course, I could always just go on to the woof site, and uh, it is a nice way to, if you're a social person and you're open-minded, it is a nice way to holiday. Lovely, and it's a a lovely way to see the world if you're someone who maybe travel on your own even. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and what's interesting, this year I've noticed um, a few more uh, applications from Irish people, young students, you know, young Irish people. And I had another lovely woofer here recently from Cork, who's a student, a finance student in Cork University. And um, he was... um, just wanted to do something different. He's, some of his friends went to the West and he said, no, I don't want to go there. I'm going to go East and uh, I'm going to go woofing. And they were saying, what's that? And he <laughs> was trying to explain to them. Anyway, so he came here for a couple of weeks and then, um, yeah, I've had another couple of young woofers as well around that age, early 20s. And it's really a fun experience at that age. Mm. So you're them. calling them woofers. That's what you call them. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because um, it's become a kind of a word. Yeah, its own its term. Own yeah, it really has. I I suppose I said at the start that um, COVID has probably scuppered it. But as you said yourself, and we're within our county right now, but it could be a case that if you are able to travel within your county, that you could volunteer like that couple and their two kids did with you, even though they're from County Wicklow, they're experiencing something completely new, which is what, in a way, holidays are about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's just opening up new new ideas and um, they seem to enjoy it. And certainly we had, um, you know, we had some nice social time together as well as some, you know, interesting education exchanges. I was teaching them about bees and pollination and I had made actually a little film um, you know I'm not a professional filmmaker I'm just an amateur mm. you know ha- have a go kind of thing so I had I had made a film a short film on um, the importance of um, I, the Irish bees actually mm-hmm. and the you know the plight of the Irish bees and they were really interesting they watched that and we had a discussion on it so it's a lovely educational opportunity as well. Yeah, it's a lovely idea. And as we said, it is worldwide. But uh, And what you were saying at the start is, depending on the ha- amount of work that they do, so you kind of divide it up by hours and that equals accommodation and food. Yeah, generally that's how it works is, you know, I mean, it's agreed with um, with the host how many hours they expect to work. And obviously it has to be reasonable. Um, I, you know, some, some places, you know, where they work about 25 hours, I... Never expect my workers to work more than 20 hours. I think that for me, that feels fair so mm-hmm. that they have time to go off and enjoy themselves as well. And um, when when I have workers from overseas, especially um, or anywhere, indeed, 
I try and make it so that the hours that they can work their hours into one day if they can, and then they have a few days they can go off and explore on holiday, and that seems to work out very well. Yeah, um, but equally, some places just they work in the morning and go out in the afternoons or something. And is it mostly so, people for in their early 20s, or like have you seen families with small kids, for example? Um, that family that I had was the first family, it's the first time I signed up for a family and okay. that was the first family that I've ever had. But having said that, I, I wasn't registered before to have families. So, um, but uh, yeah, because Wolf, ha- ha- the Wolf organization in Ireland has a lovely new website now. Um, it's very user friendly and um, people can, you know, they can read through the profiles and uh, of, you know, the, the, the potential woofers and the woofers can read through the potential hosts and um, it's very well organized and um, you can even, the host can review their woofers and the woofers can review their hosts just like you could do in, say, platforms like Airbnb. So that gives people a sense of, you know, a better sense of what they're heading into yeah, and before they go there, you know. Yeah, great idea. Well, that website, that new website for Ireland is woof.ie. There's two W's in the woof, so it's www. Is, oh, I can't even spell it. W-W-O-O-F dot I-E. And as you said, there's so many opportunities there and here in Ireland as well. Um, if at some stage we can go to other counties. Carmel, thank you so much for talking to me. It's really something that I would think of doing um, post-pandemic, hopefully. Just a lovely way to see the world and see how people actually live a sustainable life. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Someday I'll do it myself. Yes, so off to New Zealand you with you, Orla. Lovely, that would be fabulous. <laughs> Carmel, thank you so much. Thanks, Orla. Take care. The Sunday Grill on Beat 102-103. My next guest is a recent graduate from WIT and he's just self-published his first novel. Ryan Cogley is from County Wexford and you'll find him under the pen name of Orn Cogley online and in some bookshops. Ryan is chatting to me to tell us more about his novel and you're very welcome, Ryan. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. (laughs) No problem at all. Are you one of those people who spent lockdown doing something really monumental like writing a novel? (laughs) I actually wrote the novel when I was in second year of college, but I just got into the self-publishing when um, lockdown happened. It gave me kind of more time to actually self-publish it. Okay, I'm glad to hear that. So really, like us all, you spent lockdown just playing computer games yeah, and, and eating crisps and being chocolate. on social media. <laughs> eating crisps and chocolate, just yeah. like myself. I'm glad to hear that. Um, not only have you written a book, but you're calling it the first in a series. So you have yeah. big plans for this. Um, the series is called The Elemental Witches. Tell us more about it and your first novel. Well, um, it starts off, it tells the story of um, a girl called Anna de Medea and um, she's a law student. But um, when she goes to college, she finds out that she's actually an elemental fire witch and a witch hunter hybrid. And then um, there's a prophecy that basically says that an Irish demon whose name is Balor, he's uh, the king of the demons. Um, he, uh, the prophecy says that he's going to basically end the world. So then a witch um, named Olga summons him. So Anna has to hunt down all of her fellow witches of like air, water and earth in order to save the world. And um, along the way, she like um, battles demons and um other kinds of like witch hunters and stuff and then at the end it all comes like together in the end and she has to fight Balor in like this big battle with um oh. and then the witches on one side and they also have guardians which are known as guardians of the elemental witches whose job is basically just to protect the witches and then Balor and his army of Irish demons who have like banshees, Darug Dewas and Doolahans and they all have a big fight in the end. <laughs> Okay, now I've heard of Banshees. What are the other two? Um, there's a Doolahan. He's kind of like a headless horseman. He's like the Irish version. Okay. And there's Darug Dewas. They're like vampires. And then there's also um, Meros. They're just uh, like water demons. They're kind of like mermaids, sort of. Okay, I've never heard of those. Now, what kind of age group are you thinking of for this? Um, well, when I was writing it, I was thinking mainly college age. But then it like after I'd published it there's people who have been like 12 who've told me they've loved it and then there's people Mm -hmm. like my nanny's friends who'd be like 60s 70s who also told me they loved it so I feel like (laughs) like 12 and up (laughs) 
<laughs> I like your style. Why did the grannies say they loved it? I'm intrigued why they loved it. I don't know. They just like, I asked my nanny and they just said that they like couldn't put it down because like I left pretty much lots of chapters on cliffhangers. So. Oh, brilliant. They love a bit of a cliffhanger, yeah. obviously. And um, you graduated from WIT with a BA in psychology. Yeah. Did studying psychology help you in writing a book like this? Um. I think the writing side did and especially the confidence of having a degree and stuff helped with writing and um, lots of like going to college did inspire lots of events in the book like um, at the start of it she was nervous about kind of making friends and making the jump to college so was I when I started <laughs> and then um, but not your degree itself you didn't have to bring in, in any psychology into the book itself I did bring in a bit of psychology in parts <laughs> Tell us about self-publishing. Why did you go down the route of self-publishing? Well, I had um, sent a lot of like the manuscript and stuff to publishers and they'd like email me back being like, oh, we loved your book, but because you're a first time author, we don't want to take the risk. So then like after I'd say about like what felt like 50, but it was probably only like 10 like rejection kind of emails. I looked into self-publishing with Amazon and like it looked perfect. So I said, why not give it a try? <laughs> Okay, and it's done well for you. Yeah, it's done really well because you can, um, like Amazon's so helpful. They have like tutorials on how to format your book and like make it look like a proper book. And they even like have pre-made covers, but you can still design your own cover. I got my little brother. Well, he's not really my little brother. He's my twin, but I'm a minute <laughs> older, so I follow my little brother. Okay. <laughs> so I got him to draw a cover for me. So um, we just like did that ourselves. We... um like um scanned it through the printer and all and then like made it onto like laptop and everything and it like came out perfect so you're delighted with all the process and how it's ended up being yeah oh yeah I'm delighted and um it's just been really good and you can keep all the rights to your book as well so brilliant so great reactions from the 12 year olds great reactions from the 60 year olds <laughs> and that has pushed you to write a second in the series and that second one is called Creedriokta um so what's yeah. that magic heart Yeah it's just magic heart I looked up, I actually googled them um, like really nice Irish words <laughs> And I was like, oh my God, they sound so nice. I'm going to put that in the second one. <laughs> so you Googled quite literally nice Irish words. And Creed yeah. came up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I like your style. So is your first book just yeah. called <laughs> Elemental Witches? Yeah, just. Yeah, okay, so you witches. had to give it a bit of a tagline for the second one. And you've started writing yeah. that one already. Yeah, I'm about halfway through it now, I okay. think. And how is that? Like, obviously, you've graduated from college. Things are a bit askew at the moment, thanks to a pandemic. Is this your day to day life yeah. now, writing a book? Um, well, it has been for the past while, but I'm actually doing a research master's in WIT. Okay. So I'm hoping that um, because it's a research master's, it kind of, it's two years. So you have like more free time and okay. stuff. So I'm hoping I can do the research masters like in the morning, do all the work for that. And then in the evening, write the okay, second book. <laughs> you're a glutton for punishment. Yeah, I'm like, I hope there'll be a lot on my plate, but I'm hoping I'll manage. Okay. Now you're in some bookstores, aren't you? It's not just online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in um, Red Books in Wexford, uh, the Wexford Book Centre and the Waterford Book Okay, Center. so the Book Centre in Waterford, the Book Centre in Wexford and then Red Books in Washford, or in Wexford Town. And that's... And that's where you saw it on in on the shelves for the first time. That must have been just an amazing moment for you. Oh, it was incredible because I like I had ordered the books off Amazon. So I brought them in like, well, I got my brother because he was the muscle. So I made him carry the books down, a big box of books down Wexford Town for me. <laughs> and then like as soon as I got into the shop, because um, my cousin um, owns the shop. So um, I brought in the books and like the minute I got there, he started putting the price tags on them and put them oh. on a shelf under a display. And I had to take a picture so I could show my mom when I got home. <laughs> Lovely. How would you describe Elemental Witches if you were to put it in a sort of genre? Because it sounds kind of superhero-y, but it also sounds kind of supernatural. What way are you describing yeah. it? Yeah, it kind of hits a lot, but um, I'm kind of like um putting it down as a fantasy okay. kind of. Great. All the magic elements. Okay. So, but it could also be historical because um the four witches are descended from like four original Irish witches um in history. I uh, one of them is Alice Kai Teller. She was the first woman in uh, in Europe, I think, okay. to be tried for witchcraft. Okay. So um 
I could fit into historical fantasy as well and urban fantasy. And is that the sort of stuff that you like to read yourself? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I like when I was little, I always like had a Harry Potter book in my hand. <laughs> OK, good stuff. So you're going down that route. Well, listen, congratulations. It's called The Elemental Witches. If people want to check it out, as we said, it's in the Red Bookstore in Wexford Town and then in the Book Centre in Wexford and in Waterford. But you can also go to Facebook and give The Elemental Witches a like on Facebook for updates on its progress and for teasers of that second book in this series, The Elemental Witches, Creed Riechta, which Ryan Googled. <laughs> I think that's my favourite part of the story. Listen, best to look with everything and well done on getting that book out there and best of luck with the second one. Thanks a million and thank you so much for having me. Like, it's incredible to like be on this. <laughs> oh, you're very good. Thanks a million, Ryan. Talk to Thanks you. Thank you so much. <laughs> The Sunday Grill on Beat 102-103. As Sean Mendes with Camilla Cabello, it is called Senorita here on Beat 102-103. Well, three of Waterford's finest festivals take place under the umbrella of the Imagine Arts Festival. Um, it's the 19th year of the festival, but like many other things, it is going online in 2020. Festival manager Nora Boland is on the phone to tell us more. You're very welcome, Nora. I m must ask you how you and the rest of the team are feeling. Is it something that you kind of knew this was going to have to happen? Uh, we always felt, yeah, um, that um, it was going to uh, be a strong possibility. So I suppose when it happened, it, it's um, it was disappointing. We just kind of feel, well, look, let's just move forward and Luckily enough, we've managed to take 80% of the programme online. Which but, is brilliant. Um, yeah, no, it's great. Now, unfortunately, we've, we've um, you know, because we were really trying to get a live element out there and um, we've had to lose uh, quite a number of our music acts and theatre. But uh, other than that, we're, we're, we're kind of happy with what we can bring with us, which is great. And I suppose October, you know, I, I wonder if back in the summertime, did you think that you were going to be able to do this when numbers were so small and it looked like we were coming out of this, but there was always a talk of a second wave. So was there ever a glint of hope that you'd be able to just continue as normal at the Imagine Arts Festival? Um, yeah, we had, we had kind of hope up to last Sunday. Oh, really? <laughs> um, okay. Well, just because um, the numbers were so low in Waterford, you know, mm. they'd gone up, but they came back down and that. And um, we we kind of had decided back in April that we would work with um, the arts venues within Waterford, whereas normally we would be going into smaller kind of quirky venues. Mm -hmm. So um, we, we did kind of, on doing that, we, we really did have a strong hope that we could get there. But... Um, Look, you know, um, it is what it is, and unfortunately, um, our venues have have had, have had to close uh, for the moment. Um, but uh, you know, we're, we're happy with what we can bring forward, and um, yeah. So now, at the moment, we're just scrambling now just to get everything uh, up, and um, I'm learning a lot. <laughs> about the online experience as we go, um, as we all are, you know. Of course, of course. Now, you might explain the Imagine Arts Festival to people who don't know it. As I said at the start, it is three festivals in one towards the end of October every year in Washford City. Yeah, this is our 19th year and it's a, um, a multidisciplinary festival where we incorporate uh, everything from music, theatre, literature, uh, dance, visual arts, um, uh, historical as well, and uh, we've got uh, two side festivals. So we've done the John Dwyer Trad Festival, which has been with us for the last um, nine years, and uh, unfortunately John passed away this year, so, you know, this year is kind of very special. Okay. We've some, uh, we've two lovely intimate concerts uh, that we pre-recorded in the Medieval Museum, uh, one that would be celebrating all of John's music and the other then celebrating our uh, data mu musicians and uh, the music that has influenced them. Lovely. And then we have the Waterford Writers Weekend came on board with us. We're in our third year with the Waterford Writers Weekend. So we have a fantastic literary programme there, um, you know, with some local um, profiles like the likes of Jim Nolan uh, talking everything about theatre 
And then we've national like Dieran Negriefa who um has launched um new books. Yeah, Sarah Baum. I've heard so much about yeah. this novel, A Ghost in uh, in the Throat. So you've really yeah. a bit of a coup in having Dieran online and I love the Waterford Writers Weekend. It's a lovely part of the Imagine Arts Festival. And I think it's probably one of the ones that'll go online quite well because it's lovely to sit down and listen to authors talk about their motivations for writing. It is, it is, you know, to just have that opportunity of their insight into mm. it. And we only got confirmation this morning, actually, that Darren's going to be interviewed by Megan Nolan. Brilliant. Who is one of our own and, again, <clears throat> about to release her own novel and that. So I, I, that's quite an exciting talk, actually, between the two of them, I'd say. Um, and, a, and a bit of an advantage there in the fact that Megan lives uh, abroad in the UK. So it, it, more of a chance to get those sort of people, I suppose. Yeah, because we had asked uh, Megan back in August, would she, you know, in the likelihood that she might be home around that time That uh, because it was uh, a live event, mm. but she couldn't because of travel restrictions. So um, we're delighted now, you know, so everything has its silver lining, you know, um, uh, the fact that we can bring in uh, Megan and um, the fact that Megan, uh, based in London, you know, it's a silver lining that we can get her... Um, online, you know, and uh, as I say, I think for Sassam Deere now, I think that would be a cracking interview. Yeah, fab, just uh, great. Now let's talk visual art and you have a lovely piece um, with Claire Scott. She's going to present the Galway Incident, which is a, a short film of five minutes. Again, perfect for sitting at home and watching online as well. Yeah, um, Claire actually, her film is based around deafness as well. Um so, yeah, I, and I think, yeah, as you say, that five-minute pieces are always very good. Our exhibitions, which, again, were live, we're actually putting them uh, as virtual exhibitions online too. Um, we have uh, Laura James, who we hoped would be over from California to exhibit this year. She's going to do an artist talk with Sandra Kelly of Garter Lane, uh, kind of a first presentation on the 16th and followed through on the, uh, the 23rd just with a Q&A um, that people can submit questions that Sandra would um, put in front of Laura. And then another piece that's very exciting is the Imagine Arts Trail. This year, again, we couldn't do a live arts trail because it goes into small little venues like restaurants and shops and bars and that. So uh, we actually went uh, in August to the studios and we recorded the artists in their studios. So they talk about themselves, you know, your, uh, what's lovely is that you, you actually get to be in the artist studio for a little nosy around. And again, these pieces, they're short, you know, five to seven minutes long. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you can pop in and pop out of. Um, a lot of, um, well, uh, all the, the visual arts will go online on the 16th, except for our exhibition, which is our main exhibition, which is Margot Banks. Mm -hmm. We had the official opening for the 21st, so that will launch on the 21st. And uh, again, the virtual tour will be online uh, from then. So, yeah, um, I mean, it is great because visual art, obviously, to be able to stand in the gallery in front of a piece is mm -hmm. the way you would like to. But um, we have been able to transfer. And then also the Creating Together Apart, which is our Young Artists exhibition, um, we do hope to have that hung up within the city. Um, I've yet to confirm a venue on that, but um, we're also bringing that online and that has been a competition. So we'll announce the winners again on the 16th of October once it launches. Okay, good stuff. Good to hear. Yeah. Um, you are thinking outside the box. As a lot of arts and culture events have had to over the past few months, the Imagine Arts Festival is the 16th to the 25th of October. Uh, best place to go to check out more details is imagineartsfestival.com. Nora, best of luck with it all. Thanks a million, Orla. Okay, take care and keep safe. The Sunday Grill on Beat 102 103.